In each Cotton Malone book, I try to explore another facet of his personality that we have never seen before. And I do that in every book. There's some aspect of his personality that I go into that forms the basis of that story. And you get a pretty good picture of him after 17 books and how he is a, a different kind of guy that, than he was in the beginning. An excerpt from today's guest, speaking about his history action thriller series featuring Cotton Malone. We'll speak with New York Times best-selling author Steve Barry about his latest novel, The Kaiser's Web, right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. February is Black History Month, and my new book, Immortal Valor, about the Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II, is out now. The book chronicles these immortal heroes' life journeys, through all the pain and struggle up until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book to discover more as we celebrate Black History Month. Just visit my website at robchild.net or visit any online retailer. Welcome back. Today's guest is the New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author of the Cotton Malone novels, among other books. He and his wife are founders of History Matters, which is dedicated to historical preservation. He serves as an emeritus member of the Smithsonian Library's Advisory Board and was a founding member of International Thriller Writers, formerly serving as its co-president. His latest book is called The Kaiser's Web, and author Steve Barry joins us now. Steve, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit about your background first. You worked as a practicing attorney for a number of years and then served in public office. What made you decide to get into the writing game? Well, I started writing as all writers do because you have a little voice in your head that tells you to do it. And it doesn't tell you to write a bestseller and sell a bunch of books and all that kind of stuff. It simply just tells you to sit down and write. Uh, it wants you to do that every day. If you'll do that, it will hush. If it doesn't, if you don't, then it will just continue to nag you and nag you. And that little voice nagged me for about 10 years. Uh, I ignored it for about 10 years. And then finally in the summer of 1990, I started I listened to it and started writing a book and the voice went quiet. So I learned how to silence that little voice. And um, that's really what drives you to, to keep going is, is that little voice in your head. But from the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word was 12 years. And I wrote eight manuscripts during that time. Five went to New York houses. They were rejected 85 times. Wow. So I made it the 86th time, 12 years after I started. So my path to publishing was very long and arduous. Well, that's a, a story of perseverance, that's for sure. And, you know, good for other writers to know. And, and I'm living proof that you can do it. So it can be done. Yeah. Now, your, uh, your current book, The Kaiser's Web, delves into a mystery with Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun. Did they take their own lives in the bunker? When you went into the story, did you have an opinion on it that changed based on your research and writing? Not really. I mean, in reality, they both died in the bunker and they both died there. We'll, unfortunately, we'll never know for sure, though, because the Russians found the bodies, took them off, disposed of them. Uh, and that was Stalin wanted to do that. So he wanted to keep the world off guard. So he wanted the world to think Hitler was still roaming around out there. That gave him the freedom of movement to do what he wanted to do in Eastern Europe. So unfortunately, we'll never know for sure. But 
all of the evidence is pretty clear, you know, it, to me anyway, the circumstantial evidence is clear enough that they did die in the bunker, but doesn't mean you can't have some fun with it. And I did have a little bit of fun with it. And I, I think I came up with a plausible way that they, that that might not have been possible. Yeah, because it's, it still has remained a mystery all these years later. You launched a foundation, History Matters, dedicated to historic preservation. Tell us a little bit about that organization. Well, we started it, Elizabeth and I, my, my wife Elizabeth and I, we started it in 2009. And it was a way to give back. Uh, we had been going around to communities. I, I at the time, was uh, serving as a county commissioner. I served as one for 10 years. And I realized that public funds for historic preservation pretty much don't exist. They're not anywhere. Uh, there's no one going to come in and save your historic buildings and documents and statues and land and you name it. No one's going to come and save it for you. Uh, you've got to do it yourself. You have to do it in each community, one piece at a time. And then I had that idea and I said, well, okay, that's great, you know, but, you know, does it, does it really matter? Does it really matter? So I was at an event and um, we were at an event and an archivist told me something. He said, there are millions and millions of pages of documents in archives all over this country right this second. They're right there, right now. Historic documents that date back 100, 200 years. And every second of every day, the ink on some of them is fading away. Fading away to the point that you can't even read the document anymore. So every second we lose another piece of the past, another little piece of the past. And I never really thought about it like that before. And that was really interesting. It, it really struck me. I said, well, that is, that's quite powerful. I never really saw it that way. So we created History Matters and we uh, made ourselves available to local communities to help them raise money for historic preservation. So if a community called us up, like they called us up from Houston, they had found this old flag. Uh, in Houston. It was the very first city of Houston flag, and it dated back about 160, 50, 60 years. And it had this flag. It was in pretty bad shape, and they needed to raise money to restore it. So Elizabeth and I went, and we had a lunch, and everyone bought into the lunch, and all the profit from that lunch went to the project. And then we taught a writer's workshop where we taught writing for four hours, and everyone bought in with a fee to go to that, and all of that money went to the project. Elizabeth and I do not charge to come. We do not charge to appear. In fact, we pay our own way to go. Mm -hmm. So every dime of the money that is raised goes to the project, and we raised about $30,000 that afternoon, and that's what they needed to restore the flag. So these are the kinds of things we do. We do small projects that have great impact. And we've done about 90 of them around the country, raised uh, pushing $2 million now where we've raised for those. Now we haven't done anything in 20 or 21 or 22, but hopefully we'll get back in the business of it next year in 23. Being a Southerner, uh, do you have an opinion on some of these statues that they want to remove? I don't really get into that. That's more political than historical. I would only say that everything has a historic value, no matter what it is. It may have good historic value. It may have bad historic value, but it still has historical value. And 
as a preservationist, you know, I would want to preserve those things and not see them destroyed, whether they're openly displayed or not. That's a really a political question more so, but I, uh, I wouldn't want to destroy anything. I mean, that's the whole point. We keep it so that we never, ever, ever forget. Absolutely. I agree. Getting back to your writing, I read where you used 200 to 300 sources for your books. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about your research process? Yeah, for the no- each novel, it's somewhere in that neighborhood of, uh, of sources. Uh, they are generally books, actual physical books. Occasionally, I'll use some e-books, but e-books are not very practical for me because I need a working index. Mm. I, I can't go through, I can't read 300 books, but I, I do read large chunks of 300 books, but I need an index in order to zero in on what I'm looking for. And uh, e-books, unfortunately, don't offer that for me. So I buy most of them at a gigantic used bookstore in Jacksonville, Florida, called the Chamblin Book Mine. Mm. He has a huge history section in there, and I can get pretty much what I need there, usually. Uh, keep You have to keep going back uh, and, and, and check this, because the shelves are constantly changing. What I do is I get... I go in, I'm looking at a source, like in the Kaiser's Web, I'd be looking for stuff about the bunker, what happened there, uh, what happened um, with uh, Martin Borman, what happened in South America, uh, all of these all of these elements of the story. And then I just get every book I can find and I put them in a box and take them home. And I start going through them, looking for the nuggets. Now, if I knew what I was looking for, I wouldn't have to go hunt for all the books. So it's a treasure hunt. I have to go through the books looking, keeping in mind what I think I want the plot to be, and everything begins to evolve. And I I end up with somewhere between 200 and 400 sources. Uh, I do not keep them all. They all go back in the box. I take them back to the book mine, trade them back in, and start all over again. And I, I run that whole process, and I've done that now 22 times. Uh, and it works out very well for me. Um, I've kind of carved a niche with my stories that I try to keep things as close to reality as possible. Mm. I try to keep it as close to the historical facts as possible. But I'm writing a novel, so I do have to trip it up here and there. And about 10% of the has to be tripped up to, for, for the novel to work. What I do do in each novel, though, is in the back of the book, there's a writer's note, which I spend a lot of time on. And I tell you in that note what is true and what is false so that you don't leave the novel thinking one or the other, you'll know. The only thing I caution to uh, readers is do not read that first because it will give away the entire novel. And um, so you don't want to you don't want to read that first at all. But when you're done, read it. It will fill in the gaps and tell you what was true and false. Is this something that you decided to do or was suggested by your publisher? No, it was my, my doing. Uh, my, one of my favorite writers of all time was a, a wonderful lady named Sharon, Sharon K. Penman. And she wrote magnificent historical novels. Um, the Sun and Splendor is one of my all-time favorite books that she wrote. And in the back of her book, she had a writer's note, and hers would go 30, 40 pages. Wow. She was very detailed in it, and she lets you know everything true and false in there. And I got it from her, and I saw it, and I appreciated it when I got through with her novel. It filled in a lot of gaps 
and told me what was true and false. And so I said, well, if I ever do get published, I'm going to mimic that and do it. And I've done it in every novel. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next week, we kick off March with former Special Forces officer and New York Times best-selling military thriller author, Brad Taylor. Brad will be here to talk about his latest novel in the Pike Logan series, End of Days. Eight months ago is when I'm writing this book, and I was like, well, if COVID's gone in January when the book's released, who wants to read about that? I mean, nobody does. (laughs) So I'm like, do I include it or just act like it doesn't exist? And uh, when I was writing the book, I looked at all the variants that were coming out of Africa and all that kind of stuff, and I was like, Nah, this thing's going to be around a while. You might as well include it. That's next time. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel. We've got bonus video material from podcasts plus tons of military history videos, including full-length documentaries. It's a great way to spend some time, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. And click the bell icon so you'll be notified of all the great weekly videos we're uploading. February is Black History Month, and my new book, Immortal Valor, about the Black Medal of Honor recipients of World War II is out now. The book chronicles these immortal heroes' life journeys through all the pain and struggle up until their ultimate triumphs. I hope you check out the book to discover more as we celebrate Black History Month. Just visit my website at robchild.net or visit any online retailer. Now back to the conversation. Do you find, I, I found this in my writing and research, that sometimes you'll get conflicting sources where three different sources or more will say different things. How do you handle that? Well, as I said, I read 300 books on the same, on, you know, maybe about a hundred books on the same subject. And if you look at a hundred books on the same subject, you will see very close, very clearly how they conflict with one another. Okay. It's constant conflict. It's constantly, in fact, that's the, that's the rule. There will be conflict between all of the books. I try to split the difference. What's the majority view? Uh, If not, then I try to come up with my own plausible way of splitting the difference of what I'm reading. Um, Sometimes it's really hard because they give two really different views of something. Uh, Most times it's minor details, but you can usually see the errors in most of them. If you've read enough on it, you can say, no, that's definitely wrong. That's 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 wrong day. That's wrong sequence. That didn't happen there. No, no, clearly. So you you have to kind of put your own um, two cents into the process. But it is a common practice with me. I see it all the time. And it is amazing how uh, these books that profess to be authoritative or, you know, conflict with one another uh, over and over and over again. Your main character in this series, Cotton Malone, was he based on a real person or a composite character? He's based on me. Uh, Yeah, just me. Uh, When I created the Templar Legacy in 2006, where he was first introduced, we had the, the idea we wanted to do a series, but we weren't arrogant enough to think we were going to get to do 20, you know, 16, 8, 17 books in that series. We wanted to do one story, and then hopefully we get to do another one, and hopefully we get to do another one, hopefully. So it, I found it just easier to use me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my personality, my my words, my, thing, my idiosyncrasies all kind of went into cotton. Mm-hmm. 
and I don't jump out of planes and shoot guns and do all that stuff he does. That's sort of alter ego stuff there for me. But his his attitude on things and his positions and things are a lot of mine. Cassiopeia Vitt, who's his love interest, is really based on my wife, Elizabeth. So it's basically her in there. And I it just worked out well, and I just kept it up. And once, once we saw, you know, the Templar Legacy remains to this day my largest selling book. So it still sells very well. Uh, and people like Cotton. Uh, he's a he's not a Daniel Craig kind of guy. He's more of uh, a George Clooney kind of guy. You know mm-hmm. that if sure. if you see the difference between the two, he, you know he doesn't work out, run. You know, buffed up and all that. He's an ordinary guy, but he can do extraordinary things if called upon. And that's what makes him. I think people like him and they've enjoyed him and. He's changed a lot from the Templar legacy to the Kaiser's Web. There's, uh, you know, there's 18 years between those books. And right. Cotton has evolved. He's not the same character. In each Cotton Malone book, I try to do, I try to explore another facet of his personality that we have never seen before. And I do that in every book. There's some aspect of his personality that I go into that forms the basis of that story. And so you get a you get a pretty good picture of him after 17 books and how he is a, a different kind of guy that, than he was in the beginning. Uh, this just occurred to me. Do some of your readers question some of the things that Cotton Malone does? They have certain expectations and they would... You know. No, I, I, I've been I've been very fortunate there that I I've kept him fairly consistent, so he hasn't done anything horribly out of character. Mm. Uh, I'm very careful about keeping him in his character, so I haven't had that problem yet. Um, I have to be careful with his voice because he has a particular voice of that character, the way he expresses himself, and I don't want that to slip into another character because he's the only one who talks like that. Um, that I have to watch, but no, they've, uh, they, I've never, I haven't had a problem where they, someone's written me and said that, you know, Cotton would never do that. You know, um, I, I've tried to make sure his motivations are clear and make sense. Going back to your first book about the Knights Templar, hmm? what drew you to those? Uh, well, at the time, it was really a hot subject because Da Vinci Code was still going big. Hmm. That was in 2006. I wrote the book in 2004. Da Vinci came out in 2003, and Templars to this day are still a hot subject. They've just yeah. been kind of done to death is all. They've been, you know, there's really nothing left to do with them. So, uh, you know, at that time, though, it was still pretty hot subject. But my Templars are very different now. I, my Templars are the real Templars. I, I don't give you the Hollywood Templars. Uh, we looked at the real Templars, the real rule they live by, the real code they worked by, the real life. I tried to, I made them, you know, to, to the historical real Templars, and they're quite different than the Hollywood Templars. And, and a perfect example would be Templars never bathed, hmm. never, ever. But you see in all the Hollywood movies how dashing and wonderful they are, and they after the ladies and everything. Imagine what they would smell like. They're wearing all of that chain mail. They're wearing all that, and they never bathed, ever. Wow. I mean, they would be repulsive, basically, is what they'd be. And they all had very thick, long beards, which were kind of nasty. They, you know, so it's a very different rule, very different uh, than, than, than they were. But, but even so, the real Templars, to me, are fascinating. And that's what I tried to show in the Templar legacy. 
Yeah, I'm fascinated by that time period as well. You have a new book coming out in June uh, called The Omega Factor with a new main character, UNESCO investigator Nicholas Lee. How is he different from Cotton Malone? Well, I moved publishers. I've gone from Macmillan over to Grand Central, and they wanted to do something new and fresh for my first book with them. So Cotton's taking this year off. He'll be back next year. Uh, he's just taking a year off. And I've had this character in the back of my head for a long time, this uh, guy who works for the United Nations for a division there called Clio. He's a cultural liaison and investigative officer, Clio being the muse of history from Greek. From Greek. Um, he goes around and investigates and protects cultural treasures. And he's younger than Cotton. Uh, he uh, has a different background than Cotton, very different background. Uh, he has a different family than Cotton. He has brothers and sisters and all kinds of things. So he, there's a lot about him very different than Cotton. But in some ways, they're similar because they are both can rise to the occasion. They both can do what they need to do. Uh, they both have vulnerabilities, which are explored in this book. And so you're going to get to meet Nicholas Lee. And you're also going to get to uh, learn something about the most stolen and vandalized work of art in all of history. Mm. Uh, it's the Ghent altarpiece that's located in uh, the Belgian town of Ghent. It's been vandalized, stolen, destroyed, or somehow been affected 13 times uh, in the last 600 years. So why this one piece of art? Why was this one piece of art so subject to all of this mayhem? Uh, that's what the novel deals with and explores. And, we'll, and if people like Nicholas, Nick Lee, maybe he'll come back one day. We, I don't know. We just we wrote him to be something fresh and different. It's, it's kind of like the same but different. Right. It's different characters, different motivations, different things, but the same in that it's action, history, secrets, conspiracies. So my readers, I think, will really like it. So you wrote it as sort of a standalone with the hopes of a series. Yeah, you never know. If he, if he catches on, we'll go back and visit Nick again. I, I could envision more adventures with him. He, he's, he was fun. He's like a combination of Cotton Malone and Luke Daniels. Luke Daniels is the younger character in my novels. He's like a mixture of those two. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and like I said, he has different motivations and different different things that 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 push his buttons that than cotton and he gets caught up in something very interesting here something from his past that draws him in and he's going to have a, a great adventure that starts in belgium and ends up in southern france sounds intriguing i'm mm -hmm. sure comes out june the 7th june the 7th and we're talking about your latest book which is the kaiser's web and the book is available everywhere steve thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show today Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next week, we kick off March with former Special Forces officer and New York Times best-selling military thriller author, Brad Taylor. Brad will be here to talk about his latest novel in the Pike Logan series, End of Days. Eight months ago is when I'm writing this book, and I was like, well, if COVID's gone in January when the book's released, who wants to read about that? I mean, nobody does. Right. <laughs> So I'm like, do I include it or just act like it doesn't exist? And uh, when I was writing the book, I looked at all the variants that were coming out of Africa and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, nah, this thing's going to be around a while. We might as well include it.
That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. You can find me on Twitter, at Rob Child, where you can share your comments about the show. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of Despair. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.